listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. We are going to spend the next several weeks looking at the book of Exodus, and I couldn't be more excited. First and foremost, because of how Exodus fits into the great story of God in the Bible. So if if you're unfamiliar, let me paint it for you. Uh, The Bible begins with the book of Genesis. Genesis means origins. In Genesis, we get the origins of all of creation, God created everything and it all belongs to him. In the center of his creation, God created a people. That's the origin story of humanity. God created them, both man and woman, and he gave them a mission. Not long after he gave them a mission, we see the origins of humankind's rebellion against God. They chose to go their own way. And the rest of the story of Genesis is about God pursuing his people because God does not give up on his image bearers. That's Genesis. And Exodus picks up right where Genesis left off. Exodus is critical for the rest of the story of the Bible. The Bible has 66 books. And for each book of the Bible, after Exodus, they point back to Exodus because of how much it matters in the whole story of the Bible, a story that could be characterized as a story of redemption. Exodus is important because it is the first time we interact with that word redeemed. Redeemed. Exodus is all about redemption. And in fact, God works in patterns throughout history, but he's far too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So we find the pattern for all of redemption in the Bible that begins in the book of Exodus. In the coming months, we're going to look at what redemption looks like for the Israelites, the people of God in Exodus. And we're going to learn from them. We're going to learn about who God is. We're going to learn about how God works because it's still applicable today. We need to understand redemption to unlock what's happening in the rest of the Bible. And in fact, from the Old Testament on in the book of Exodus, we see a few things that happen in the story that we're going to learn and study over the course of the next couple of months. We see that God is going to deliver people from harsh and oppressive circumstances. God does that throughout human history. We see that he's going to do it in miraculous ways beyond anyone's comprehension. God is going to show his power over creation, over kings, and God is going to deliver people out through, uh, through what we'll learn to know as the Passover. If you don't know about that, in a few weeks we're going to talk about the Passover, and it's extraordinary In fact, for the rest of the Bible, the Passover is to be celebrated among God's people. In the Old Testament, they also use verbiage that we find in Exodus, not just with that celebration of Passover, where God literally saved people from death. But in the rest of the Old Testament, when God interacts with people, he tells them, I am the Lord, your God, the God who brought you out of Egypt. So for the rest of the Old Testament, he points back to that amazing thing that happened. Where? In the book of Exodus. 
And how were people saved from death? We'll get into the the nitty gritty details of the story, but while God's people were enslaved, he told them to do something by faith. They didn't think this was normal. They had to do this by faith. They had to slaughter a lamb without blemish, without any abnormalities. They had to slaughter something valuable, take its blood and smear it on the door frames of the house. And God promised when, when death came, death would pass over them if the blood of the lamb was covering their household. And all those people who had faith and trusted and obeyed followed God out. But we get this theme of the blood of the lamb that started in Exodus. It's referred to in the rest of the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament, this new covenant that God establishes with his people. New covenant, but same God. So he draws back on a lot of what he taught his people about redemption in the book of Exodus. Jesus comes onto the scene and very early in his teaching ministry, Jesus says he's going to be the deliverer. Well, that was a role that was unique to God. So Jesus, from the very inception of his ministry, promising to set people free, is calling himself God. Make no mistake, Jesus doesn't think he's a God among gods. He is telling the world, I'm what you've been waiting for. And then Jesus goes on to teach and perform miracles. And as he performs miracles, what's he doing? He's showing his power over nature, just like God did where? In the book of Exodus. Jesus is the God that his people were looking to for help. Jesus went on in his teaching ministry and he was challenged. And an expert in the law came to Jesus and asked, what is the greatest commandment? In the Levitical law laid out in the Old Testament, there were 613 commands that people were supposed to live by. We sum them up in the Ten Commandments, which come, guess where? Great, in the book of Exodus. You said it with your eyes. In the book of Exodus, we have the Ten Commandments that can be broken down, and historically they were broken down into two categories. Jesus' answer to the expert in the law, what's the greatest command? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where did that theme come from? They often knew that as the summarization of the Ten Commandments. It was a common answer. It was the right answer. But it's also referring back to Exodus. And then we find Jesus, who's not only shown that he's God and told that he's God, but right before he goes to do what no one else can do, go to the cross to die for the sins of the world, he celebrates a meal with his disciples. Does anyone know what meal that is? The Passover meal. And he teaches them. He summarizes all his ministry that night before he would go to the cross. He says, remain in me, love your neighbor, reach the world. And then he goes to the cross and demonstrates that he is in fact the Passover lamb that the world has been waiting for. That's the work of Christ. They would have to slaughter a a faultless, blemishless, perfect lamb year after year when they celebrated Passover until they got to Jesus, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus is the greater exodus. But if we are to understand how God works throughout human history to redeem, which literally means to buy back, never to be sold again, we have to understand the book of Exodus. It doesn't even end there. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, 
Revelation talks about the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the resurrection, who ascended into heaven, coming back to this earth to raise the dead, to resurrect the dead, all the dead, and those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will be resurrected to glory in the perfect presence of the Father. All those who don't believe are resurrected to death and eternal destruction in hell separated from God. Why does that matter so much? God is trying to teach us who he is and how he works so that we can cling to him, so that we can trust him and obey him because he wants to deliver us from the hardships of the world that we're living in. So we approach this book of Exodus not trying to find ourselves in this story, but rather trying to find God in this story and apply it to our lives today. Because as I said, God works in patterns, but he's far too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So as we think about these wandering people, before we get into Exodus chapter one, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself in a season of life where you feel like you're in the midst of a wilderness, figuratively in a wilderness. I've been lost in actual wilderness. That's also terrifying. Have you ever found yourself in a season of life that figuratively feels like you're in the midst of wilderness? Have you ever gotten to a point in life where the world around you isn't what you imagined it was going to be and you don't know how God would allow you to get to this place? If you've experienced that, you're in good company because that's the people of God in Exodus. Maybe you're there right now. We're in a tremendously difficult season. And it's not just that we've gone through a few hard things in the last year. It's persistent difficulty. I know many people here are weary because of life. And it's not wrong for us to ask the question, if we worship a good and loving God, how did we get here? How can I be so tired right now? How can I be so weary right now? How can life be so difficult right now? Maybe friendships aren't what you thought they'd be in this season of life. Adulthood might not be what you thought it was going to be. Your career isn't what you thought it was going to be. Marriage or parenting aren't what you thought they were going to be. Maybe for you, it's just the the summation of life having more pain and grief than you ever imagined it would if you were a child of God. Have you ever been sure the grass was going to be greener on the other side of the fence? But then when you got there, you realized someone still had to water weed and mow it. Many of us live with this expectation that, that if we're people of God, life will get progressively easier. That's not what we read in the pages of the Bible. Some of us believe that that the harder we try, the better we should do. And even if we get the promotion, the vacation, the graduation to the next season of life, the relationship that we were looking forward to, it was supposed to be the beginning of our happily ever after, but it, it didn't work. It didn't come to fruition. The Bible teaches us, the Bible teaches us that we are in the midst of God's story of redemption. And Exodus teaches us how to worship in the wilderness. 
Many of us want to be uh, delivered out of our hardships right into what they knew as the promised land in the Bible. But what we're going to find in the coming weeks is that God teaches us to worship in the wilderness. That's good news for us. The story of Exodus shows us that nothing is beyond God's reach of redemption. Nothing is beyond God's reach of redemption. Nothing you've done, nothing that's been done to you is beyond God's reach of redemption. But if we're going to believe that, we have to ask a follow-up question. Will God's work of redemption happen through me or despite me? That's what we have to wrestle with. So how do we learn from the book of Exodus? Exodus is what's called historical narrative. I want you to say that out loud because we're going to be talking about this for the next two months. Say historical narrative. How many of you remember going to English class at some point in your life? How many of you remember forgetting most of what you learned in English class? Yeah, about the same amount of people that attended English class. Okay, so remember, the Bible is a book. The Bible is literature. Literature was intended to be understood based on what genre, what type of literature it is. Historical narrative is a type of literature. Historical narrative is a real story that happened to real people at a real place in time. That is historical narrative. When we read the book of Exodus, we're reading a real story about a real people at a real place in a real time. How are we to understand historical narrative? Like I said earlier, we're not just going to bring what we learn in Exodus and apply it to our lives today. No, the 400 years in slavery that we're going to read about is not their version of what we've experienced in quarantine or their version of what we've experienced in a bad marriage or what it's like to remote educate your kids for 11 months. No, 400 years of slavery is literally 400 years of slavery, okay? So that's not how we read historical narrative. We don't just try to apply it to our life. And by the way, whoa, are we like time out for a second to think that (laughs) 400 years of slavery compares to 11 months in quarantine when we still get to eat out and and see people and worship like this, okay? That's not what we're going to gain from this book of the Bible. Instead, when we look in Exodus, we're looking for God's patterns of working in human history. Exodus is rich with the character of God. Exodus is oozing with who God is and how God works. We can't afford to miss it. So we should be looking in this historical narrative for who God is and how God works. And as I said before, we should be looking for the patterns in which God works because God works in patterns throughout human history, but he's far too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. I'm going to repeat myself a lot in this series because it is critical that we learn to understand God this way. So this story is rich with truth about God, and that is what we want to harvest for today. In Exodus, God's people have been in slavery for 400 years. And while God's been with them the entire time, their crisis is getting more and more severe. He's about to do something beyond their wildest imaginations. He's going to save them from a global superpower in Egypt. And he's going to do so in miraculous fashion. It's amazing what happens. 
At the time, Egypt, where God's people, the Israelites, were in slavery, it was led by Pharaoh. Who in history class remembers Pharaoh? Good. Most of the same people that went to English class. Who remembers what Pharaoh is? He's not just the leader of Egypt. Pharaoh is considered a divine monarch. Do you remember forgetting what divine monarch means? It means he not only sees himself as a God-appointed leader, he sees himself as a God himself. This divine monarch, Pharaoh, is oppressing God's people, Israel, in slavery. What does that look like? Let's read the story. We're going to find out that this is one nasty leader, this one nasty Pharaoh. Exodus 1 begins with this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants were 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation eventually died, but the Israelites were fruitful and increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Anytime you see a genealogy, a list of names in the Bible, that is not merely a cool list of old-timey names for hipsters to, to pull baby names from for their children. This is a list reminding people that we're talking about real people at a real place in history. Who are these people? They're the people of God, the people of Israel. In Genesis, they're called the patriarchs. This is the line of patriarchs from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. Now it's Joseph and 400 years later into into slavery in a land that they don't belong in. God's people are out of place in Egypt. It's not where they were meant to be. Have you ever felt out of place before? Have you ever felt like this world or your circumstances or a season of life is not where you're meant to be? Israel is literally in that place in Egypt. God's people are in slavery, but don't worry. It's much worse than it sounds. First, we see that they're in political slavery in the next few verses, beginning in verse 8. A new king, the Pharaoh, who did not know about Joseph, a man of God, came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, They will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Pharaoh is worried that he's going to lose power, so he's putting Israel in political slavery. He's making life harder for them so that they can't rise up against Egypt. That's political slavery. They're forced to be loyal to Pharaoh in Egypt. In verse 11, it begins to get worse we see that he also puts them in economic slavery. Listen to this, beginning in verse 11. So the Egyptians Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as support cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. 
so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. This is economic slavery. Not only are they forced to come under the authority of Pharaoh, they're forced to work And we'll see Pharaoh makes work progressively more difficult for them so that they can't be powerful. If you're constantly weary, you cannot be powerful. They're in political slavery. They're in economic slavery. Don't worry, it's worse than it sounds. Listen to these next verses beginning in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the Hebrews are the Israelites. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shifra and the second whose name was Pua. Some of the names are better for baby names, some are not. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. This is social slavery. This is infanticide to maintain power over a people group. This is evil. This is terrible. God's people are in political slavery. They're in economic slavery. They're in social slavery. Put a pin in that for a second. Praise God for faithful women throughout, throughout all of history. Yeah, and half of God's people said amen silently to themselves. Women are historically oppressed throughout history, yet you watch through the narrative of the Bible and faithful, often vulnerable women are leading the church in the midst of men's passivity. We'll put a pin in that for another day, but praise God for faithful women in the book of Exodus. God was saving them. God was clearly working among them by people of faith, even in the midst of of political, economic, and social slavery. But if that wasn't enough, when God would finally raise up a leader to deliver these people out of slavery in Egypt, this is what God said his problem was. In chapter 9, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship people so that they may worship me. In the midst of all that's going on among the Egyptians oppressing Israel, political, economic, and social slavery, God's biggest problem with what Pharaoh is doing is inhibiting them from worshiping him. They are also in spiritual slavery and God will not have it. 
That's the straw that broke the camel's back. The heart of the the problem, according to God, is worship. Worship doesn't begin with the types of things you do. It begins with whose you are. Whose you are. Pharaoh is not allowing the Israelites to be God's people. He is forcing them to be Pharaoh's people. He's forcing them to, to serve him in order that they can't serve God. Pharaoh is a false God who's put them into slavery and God wants to free them. He wants to redeem them for what purpose? So that they can worship him. Any false God is an enemy of the true God and you do not want to be an enemy of the true God. God cares about worship. The first profound realization that we can have in the book of Exodus is this. I'm glad you're sitting down because you're going to need to sit down for this. The first profound realization that we have in the book of Exodus is that the same word that's used for slavery is the word God uses for worship in Exodus chapter nine. Do you hear that? The Old Testament is written in the Hebrew language. The word God uses, the word the Bible uses for slavery in Exodus chapter one and two is the same word God uses for worship. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? The word literally means serving a master. Pharaoh was forcing them to serve the wrong master. God doesn't want Israel freed from Egypt so that they can govern themselves. It never goes well for people in the Bible when they do whatever's right in their own eyes. God frees people out of slavery from an oppressive ruler to come under his authority. God is freeing people from an oppressive, demanding, false God for the purpose of coming under his authority. That should have a huge influence on the way we understand worship. To worship is to come under the ultimate authority of God. Recalibrate your definition for worship right now. Worship is to come under the authority of the true God. Worship is not merely music, but music can be worship. Worship is not merely religious gatherings and activities, but those can be worship. Worship is not merely a feeling, but you can worship God with your feelings. Worship is not an experience we have when we feel connected to God. Worship is coming under the authority of God instead of any other authority. We need to understand what worship is if we're going to do it. Worship is what it means for our lives to come under the ultimate authority of God. Israel's problem in Egypt was not their circumstances. It was that they were under the wrong authority and unable to worship God. Exodus wasn't the last time God's people would be trapped in slavery to an oppressive ruler. Think about it. Centuries, millennia later, What authorities do we put ourselves under? Think about it for yourself today. I think in our world, we still have the same kind of slavery that they had millennia ago. Political slavery. Some of us believe the world is only going to be a better place if we have a better Pharaoh. 
So we, we look to appoint the Pharaoh that's going to lead us to a better world. When we do that, when we put ourselves under any authority but Jesus, we're making ourselves political slaves, trusting in them to do something that they can never accomplish. Economic slavery still exists today. It exists in many ways with the sexual and economic exploitation of slaves in the world. But I think even in the suburbs of central Texas, we can put ourselves, we can find ourselves under economic slavery when we think success or a different job or more money or more stuff is how we're going to have safety, satisfaction, and fulfillment. And when we get those things and they don't satisfy us long-term, what do we, what do we assume? It just wasn't enough. I set my sights too low. I need more. That is a form of economic slavery, social slavery. They were being, they were being physically oppressed. It was infanticide in Exodus. But for us, it's a lot more subtle of a killer. Many of us believe that if we just are able to climb to a higher status or gain certain types of relationships, whether it's marriage or parenting or getting to the right circles that allow us to feel good about ourselves, that's when life will really feel right. That's where we'll be free. And when we get those things, and they don't satisfy us, we just assume we need more different things. Political, economic, and social slavery still exists today. The worst of them all is spiritual slavery. And I'm going to tell you right now, it even exists in churches. Spiritual slavery. Some of us have great faith in our own problem-solving skills. And instead of devoting ourselves to prayer and God's word to guide our lives, we trust our ability to get ourselves where we need to be. Spiritual slavery. You're sitting on the throne. You're the king, not God. Escapism. Many of us believe we know what's best for us. So we find ourselves prioritizing time for hobbies, social media, entertainment, or substance abuse to get away from the world. That's called escapism. It's a form of spiritual slavery. Those are not bad things in and of themselves, but when we go to such things to find life that they can't offer us, spiritual slavery. Now here's what might be the worst, in my opinion. A lot of Christians believe in Christian do-goodism, some Christianized form of karma, that if my good in life outweighs my bad, if I just put out good vibes, then good should come back to me. And when it doesn't happen, we just try to do more and do more. Now, it is not bad to do good. In fact, at Easter last year, our, our church printed shirts that said here for good. And we gave them to people doing good is good when our motivation is right. But when our motivation is only to get back something that we give out, we are trusting in ourselves to do, do, do instead of trusting what has been done on our behalf by Jesus Christ on the cross. So we put ourselves in the seat of ruler, the spiritual authority, that if I can just do good, good can come back to me. And when that doesn't happen, who do we blame? 
God. God's not doing for me, even though I'm doing for him. Slavery is, is a lot more subtle in the world that we live in, but it is present. And at the heart of our problem is not our circumstances, it is our worship. All these things that I've mentioned are false gods that we can become slaves to when we want them to save us. So I ask you to pause and just reflect for a moment. Whose authority are you tempted to put yourself under instead of God? What are you tempted to believe in for a better life than God? Whatever your answer is to those questions is who you're tempted to idolize. And and trust me, we've all got things and people that we idolize things that we seek to do for us what only God can do for us. Our biggest problem isn't our circumstances. Our biggest problem isn't a circumstance crisis. It's a worship crisis. What do we find God doing in Exodus while his people are under duress? This is our bread and butter today. What do we find God doing while his people are under duress? so that they can come into worshiping God. The first thing we see that God is doing is the Lord is present in his people's pain. Some of you need to just let that sink down to the deep roots of your heart. The Lord is present in his people's pain. When Pharaoh, when Pharaoh pushes infanticide on a people group, God is there saving. He's not making a, a, a big thing out of it. Not yet. He's about to. But God is presence in, present in his people's pain. In fact, later on in Exodus 3, the Lord says, I have seen their affliction and heard their cry. Yes, I know their suffering. Christian, God is with you. God is with you even while you're hurting. A lot of times we forget that God is there in the midst of our pain, but God is with us in that suffering. In fact, this is reiterated beautifully in the New Testament in Romans 8 when we're told the spirit, the spirit of God, God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The spirit is able to interpret our grumblings when we can't even muster up the words to articulate our hurt. Even when you can't articulate how bad you're hurting, God is able to understand your pain. God is with us in our pain. Weary Christian, God is with you. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Why does God choose to work that way? Because pain is a platform to demonstrate we believe God's character doesn't change when suffering comes. Rejoicing in pain is worship. Through the tears, we embrace the comfort of our loving master. God is with us in our pain. That is good news. We also see in Exodus, God has a plan that he's working out in his timing. God is going to save his people, but he won't be rushed 
God could snap his fingers and right the wrongs of the world, but he chooses not to work that way. We see them slide over the course of 400 years into slavery and this oppression. And then we find out in chapter two, God's plan to save them. Just listen to these first two verses. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Remember what I said about God working in patterns throughout history? God is going to raise up a baby to lead them out of Exodus. If 400 years wasn't enough, they're going to have to wait till he can at least walk and talk to lead them out of slavery. God is working in his timing. Can you believe that? God's plan to deliver people was a Hebrew baby. God is not in a hurry. If you've ever wondered why God doesn't work quicker, you're not alone. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is patient with our circumstances, just like God has been patient with us. Isn't that good news? God is never early. God is never late. God is always on time. And in fact, back to Romans chapter eight in the New Testament, we're promised that all things, all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose in his timing. All things. God is patient because he wants the celebration at the end to be bigger than any of us could comprehend. God is always on time. He is never early and he is never late. This is the same God who designed acorns to metamorphose into oak trees over the course of years and years and years. God will not be rushed, and that's good for us. Thirdly, what do we see about God in Exodus? God's power is demonstrated in people's weakness. Israel couldn't save themselves. They were going to have to trust and follow God's plan. As we'll soon see, God didn't lead them out of slavery in Egypt straight into the promised land. Instead, God led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And the wilderness for them was not a well-manicured state park. It was a scary, primitive wilderness that they had not been living in for the last 400 years, so they were not very well-equipped to live in the wilderness. They were going to have to trust God. This shows us when it comes to redemption, the goal of redemption isn't a destination, it's a relationship. The goal of redemption is not a destination. It's a relationship. God wasn't going to rescue Israel to be his slaves. He was redeeming sons and daughters, and God was going to teach his children to worship in the wilderness. God wanted to be with them. Throughout history, people are under a much farther reaching slavery to something called sin. Sin is worshiping people and things other than God. It's loving people or things more than we love God. While we're just beginning the story of Exodus, each week we're going to see how the Exodus of the Israelites, this whole story, points to a better Exodus that all of human history has been longing for. Later on, in the Bible, God's story of redemption, we're going to see that God, because of his faithful love, much later was going to send another Hebrew baby to grow up and lead his people in a greater exodus out of slavery to sin 
so that they could become sons and daughters. Of course, the Exodus I'm talking about now is led by King Jesus, the son of God who embraced pain and death on a bloody cross so that he could lead us out of them. We cannot follow a leader who has not already been where we're going. We, we can't lead anyone out of a wilderness that we've never been through ourselves. So Jesus chose to walk through the wilderness of loneliness and suffering and even death in order that he could lead us through those things. Exodus gives us the key to understanding God's character and God's redemption. Will you believe? Will you believe? What authority have you trusted your life with instead of Jesus? Will you surrender that right now? Will you just allow God to illuminate what authorities you trust other than him and surrender that in prayer right now? Just say, God, I I put that on the sacrificial altar to be slain right now. I don't want to worship other things. Will you pause and just take a moment of silence to let God illuminate that so that you can worship the true king? Will you bow your head and, and pray with me? God, I pray for all of us here right now that that you would illuminate what things we love more than we love you, what things we trust more than we trust you. Would you help us all understand and see those things that, that we're tempted to believe in more than we'd believe in you? Lord, would you help us to bring those to the sacrificial altar and, and let you slaughter those things. Not because they're bad or inherently evil, but because they can't do for us what you can. God, for, for any of us who has political or economic or social or, or spiritual masters above you, Lord, we surrender them today. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Remember church, the story of Exodus teaches us that nothing you've done and nothing that's been done to you is beyond God's reach of redemption. And I also wanna point out, it is okay, it is okay for us to cry through our circumstances. It is okay to shed tears over your circumstances. It is okay for you to cry out to God in your circumstances. That doesn't mean you are immature as long as you're trusting God to be the one to deal with your circumstances.